The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, if you are new to us, if you're a guest or a visitor, and we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor, and uh, it is good to be with you. Uh, this morning, we are looking at the book of Third John. The book of Third John, we are uh, completing a series that we've been going through over the last number of weeks, the last few months, as we are looking at First, Second, and now uh, Third John. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Third John. It's at the very back of our Bibles, Third uh, John, Jude, Revelation, uh, then you hit the index. So, um, uh, but um, uh, if, if you're looking for it, it's near the back there. And if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in the, with the Bible and the chairs in front of you. And if you came here this morning and you don't have a Bible, you can take that one. It is our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. But this morning, we're looking at Third John. And Third John uh, is written by the Apostle John, as the other two books were as well, First and Second John. And we're, we're confident that it was written by John, not because he, he claims to be the author of it. In fact, his name doesn't appear in the body of our text, but because of the similar themes and the similar language that is employed. And though there are similar themes to First and Second John and Third John, there are also some differences about Third John. For instance, Third John, by word count, is the smallest New Testament letter there is. It's the smallest New Testament. That doesn't mean this is the uh, shortest sermon, though. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, so, um, but it is the smallest book of the New Testament. Also, it is the only New Testament book that does not name Jesus by name, which is very interesting. It references Jesus when it speaks of those who have went out with the name or went out proclaiming the name, but, but he does, his name is actually not mentioned in this book. And then finally, uh, the difference between one of the other differences between this and First and Second John is that First and Second John was written broadly to the church. Whereas 3 John is written to a specific person. See, we're getting, uh, we're getting to read John's correspondence. We're uh, dipping into his mail, if you will, this personal letter that he wrote to his friend Gaius. Now, we actually don't know anything about Gaius except for what's written here. There are other Gaiuses. Gaiuses. There are other men named Gaius in the New Testament. But we're fairly confident that those other men aren't the Gaius that John is writing to here. So we don't really know much about him, but what we do know is that he's a dear friend. In fact, four times John calls him beloved. Beloved. We don't use that kind of language anymore, do we? Beloved. At least not for our friends. And yet that's what John calls him. John has great affection for this man. And it's out of this affection, out of this love, out of this care for this man that, that John seeks to encourage and direct him. But he's encouraging and directing not only Gaius, he's encouraging and directing us. And so let's read Third John. John writes, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. 
I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would lead us in your truth, that you would reveal your love to us, that you would show us again your grace, your mercy, your kindness, so that we would follow you, we would know you, we would walk in goodness and flee from evil. So we pray that you would help us now, be with us, in Jesus' name, amen. So it was the fall of my freshman year, it was about the second week of fall practice, and all us infielders, I was a third baseman at the time, all of us infielders were taking ground balls. We were practicing ground balls. We were taking fungo, that's the technical term for it, taking fungo. And on this particular day, we were working on the slow roller. Now, if you're familiar with baseball, you've seen the slow roller before. A batter tops the ball or he bunts it, he lays it down, and the infielder has to run at full speed to make the play. And it's actually a very hard play to make. You have to field the ball on your your glove hand foot, and transfer the ball to your throwing hand as your throwing hand foot lands and make an off-balance, strong, accurate throw to first to beat the runner by half a step. It's beautiful. When it is done well, it is beautiful, and it looks simple, and it looks easy, but when it's not done well, it's a mess. <laughs> and so we're practicing and we're rehearsing it, and we're going over it again and again and again this day. And as we're practicing the slow roller, I remember our assistant coach, Coach Rod, he came over and he pulled me and Gary aside. We were two of the three third basemen. Gary was the starting third baseman. I was the backup. No problem saying that. I was the backup. Okay? So we're taking our ground balls. We're doing these drills. And Coach Rod says to us, when Brett comes up, and when it's his turn to work on the slow roller, I want you to look away from him. Turn your body away. Do not look and look at Juan. Now, Juan was our shortstop. And Juan was smooth. He glided to the ball. His hands were super quick. He seemed to every time make a strong and accurate throw to first. That wasn't Brett. 
Brett kind of lumbered after the ball, and he stomped towards it. And when he did field it and threw, he was robotic in nature. He kind of was jerky as he threw the ball. And so Coach Rod said, don't watch Brett, watch Juan. Don't look at him. Now, he must have seen a look of confusion on my face when he said this, because no one had ever told me not to do this before. And so he piped up and he said, I don't want you watching Brett, and I want you to watch Juan, because if you watch Brett, you're going to pick up bad habits. You see, if you watch him too much, you're going to start to field and throw and run like Brett. And I want you to be like Juan. You see, what Coach Rod understood in that moment, what he was communicating to us, was the fact that we are going to imitate and copy those things that we watch. That if we watch or give our attention or focus our gaze on something long enough, we will start to imitate it. Right? We know this to be true. Right? Married couples. Right? Even some married couples, over time, they start to look like one another. That's always weird, right? But it's true, isn't it? And even if they don't start physically looking like one another, over time they they start imitating one another, right? Those phrases, those words that they say, they say again, right? It starts to become part of their vernacular. Friends, as we spend time with one another, we start to duplicate one another's mannerisms. Kids copy the phrases and actions of their favorite movie characters. This is what we do. We imitate. You see, the question isn't, Will we imitate something or someone? The question is, what will we imitate? Because every one of us is going to do it. Coach Rod knew it. We know it. And the Apostle John knows it. That's why in verse 11, he says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Now, in this short letter, this 15-verse letter, John has two imperatives in the entire letter. The second imperative is in verse 15 when he says, greet the friends. But the first imperative comes in verse 11. And so when John moves in his letter to the point of instruction, to the point of telling his listener, Gaius, and us how we are to act and how we are to live, what he says to us is, do not imitate evil. Imitate good. And it's through that lens of imitation that I want us to look at this letter. I want us to look at this letter by seeing first what he calls us not to imitate, and then second, what he calls us to imitate. And he begins by saying, do not imitate evil. Now, as soon as you hear that, and maybe as soon as you read that, you thought, well, well, duh. (laughs) I mean, no kidding, John. Right? Like none of us, whether uh, you've been attending CTK for many years or many weeks or this is your first Sunday, I imagine not a single one of us as we we're driving here this morning, as we walked through the door, as we sat down, we thought, you know what I really hope we learn about is how to be more evil. Right? None of us thought that. It's like, duh, of course don't imitate evil. Like this should go without saying, shouldn't it? So why does he say it? If it's the duh moment, (laughs) if it's the thing that should go without saying, why does John say, do not imitate evil? Well, in order to see why, we have to understand what's going on in the letter. You see, in verse 9, we're introduced to this character, this man named Diotrephes. Now, Diotrephes, like Gaius, is someone that we don't know anything about. Other than what's written here, we don't know anything about him. 
Some have speculated that Diotrephes was maybe a leader in the church, maybe an elder. Others have suggested that maybe he was a member, just a regular person in the community. We're really not sure what he was, what his standing was. But what we do know, what is evident from this passage, is that Diotrephes was causing problems in the church. We see it in verses 9 and 10. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So you hear what he's doing. He's opposing John's authority. He's putting himself first, and he's talking nonsense against John and those that John is with. You see, he's using his words to make outrageous statements and malicious gossip about the apostle. And he's doing it because he likes to put himself first. Right? That's what John said. He puts himself first. Now, that language puts himself first. It's not simply talking about wanting authority or power or influence or putting yourself at a higher place and putting others at a diminished place. It's more than that. You see, theologians tell us that the phrase that is used here, it connotes focusing on authority that manifests itself by controlling others. And there are lots of ways to control people, aren't there? Not just dictatorial, not simply imposing oneself on others. We can control by manipulation, by fear-mongering, by lies and gossip, slander. And that's what Diotrephes was doing. And he was doing it to reduce John's authority and influence and to increase his own. And so now it becomes a little clearer why John would say don't imitate evil, doesn't it? I mean, put yourself in John or Gaius's shoes. They weren't just witnessing or hearing about evil. They were experiencing it firsthand. It was against them. And so don't you think it would have been very easy for John and for Gaius to want to respond in kind? I mean, isn't that what we would want to do? Isn't that what fills our hearts? Like, like when we've been hurt, when we've been mistreated, when we've been slandered, when we've experienced pain at the hand of others, don't, don't we want them to feel some of that pain? Don't we want to see them get what's coming to them? Don't we want their name to be drugged through the mud like ours has been? I mean, isn't this why we take to social media and we subtweet? what stirs in our hearts, isn't it? I know it doesn't feel very good to think that, to admit it, because when we talk about it like this way, it feels ugly, doesn't it? And it sounds wicked. And yet this is the very thing that every one of our hearts struggles with. This is the very thing that you and I can wrestle with and do. And so John says, do not imitate evil. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And why? Well, not simply because we're like gluttons for punishment and we're supposed to take one on the chin. We're, we're not to imitate evil because whoever does evil has not seen God. 
Do you see verse 11? That's what he said. Whoever does evil has not seen God. To, to have not seen God means to not know God. To not follow him. To not be, uh, have your eyes open to him. In other words, what John is telling us is that if you know God, if you are trusting in the Lord, if you are walking with him, then you won't imitate evil because to imitate evil is contrary to who you are. It reminds me of this scene in Moana. You've seen, maybe some of you have seen Moana, a wonderful Pixar movie. It's really fun. It's worth going and watching. But, but in Moana, Moana has to sail across the ocean, has to sail across the sea because she has to restore the heart of Tefiti. Right? Tefiti is this goddess who, who brings life to the world, who brings up islands and all these sorts of things. But Tefiti's heart has been stolen, and, and in its place is this lava monster. I forget the lava monster's name. It's hard to pronounce anyway. But, but regardless, there's this lava monster, and Moana has to get past the lava monster to restore the heart of Tefiti. And so the lava monster's throwing like balls of fire at her and trying to upend her ship and trying to kill her and destroy her. And finally, Moana gets past the lava monster and she holds up the heart of Tefiti and she realizes that the lava monster is Tefiti. That this is the heartless Tefiti. That this is what happened when her heart was removed. And so as the lava monster is coming towards her, and she's ready to replace the heart, she's ready to give it back, she starts to sing, because it's Disney. (laughs) And one of the things she sings is, this is not who you are. I know who you are. And she takes the heart and restores it to to Tefiti, And the lava melts away, and she's restored to who she is. And y'all, that's what John is telling us. You see, when we imitate evil, we are like that lava monster. We are acting not in the way in which God has made us, but we are acting contrary to how he has made us. Because those who know God who are trusting in him, who are resting in him. We do not imitate evil, but we imitate good. It is not who you are. We are those who imitate good. You see, that's what John tells us. Not just don't imitate evil, but imitate good. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. For whoever does good is from God. You see, he's saying, if you know God, if you understand his love, if you've embraced his grace, if you follow him, then you will imitate goodness because that is who you are. And to see what goodness is, we need to look at the earlier part of the letter. Because in the earlier part of the letter, what we see is that goodness is truth and love. Now, this shouldn't surprise us if you've been with us for the last number of weeks, because it seems like that has been the theme of John, isn't it? Truth and love again and again and again. And so in his parting letter to us, he brings it up again. We see truth in verses 3 and 4. I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
Now, we heard last week, if you were with us, that to walk in the truth means to follow Jesus' ways, to obey his commands, to live lives that demonstrate that truth. And when that happens, we rejoice. That's what John is doing again, right? He's rejoicing. He rejoices because his spiritual children are walking in line with Jesus. Right? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And as Christians, as followers of Christ, that is our greatest desire for our children, isn't it? For the children of this church, that they would walk with Jesus. That is more important than academic or athletic or vocational success. That they and we would walk in the truth. And I know that many of you know the joy of that of watching your children do that. You see, I know that many of us, as soon as we read, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth, we thought of our biological children, right? We can't help but do it. We can't help but do it, and there's nothing wrong in doing that. And you know the joy of watching your children walk with the truth, walk in the Lord. It is cause for rejoicing, but, but I know others of you know the sadness of watching those that you love turn away from the truth. You know the grief and the sorrow that it brings. But friends, let me encourage you, do not give up hope. Do not give up hope. I know you do, but continue praying. Praying that the truth that they heard as they were growing up, and the message that they've seen lived out in front of them, that the Lord would soften their hearts to that truth, to that message of the gospel, and that that would take root. I know you parents are praying for that, and let me just say, don't, don't stop. And let us pray not just for our, our biological children, but let us pray for our spiritual children, for those that we serve in the nursery, for those that we care for in children's Sunday school and VBS, for those that we take vows to when we baptize them. Let us pray for them. Pray for them so that they, like us, would walk in the truth. For that's what John is calling us to do. To imitate good and to imitate good by walking in truth. But he also says to imitate good is to love. It's to love. We see it in verses 5, and eight, five through 8. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Okay, so what's happened is that there has been an envoy of believers who have come through the city or town that Gaius lives and, and Gaius has taken them in. But verse 5 tells us that these were strangers. These weren't people that he knew. They were strangers, and yet he received and welcomed them. Now, this would have been the common practice of hospita hospitality in that day. That when believers were traveling from place to place, from city to city, from town to town, that they would look for other believers to stay with. And they would be taken in. 
And we have to, we have to remember, this isn't like the way that uh, we often have people passing through, right? People come through, they stay for the night, we give them a bed to sleep in, a little bit of breakfast, and they're on their way, and we go about our day, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. That's beautiful. That's good. Like, please do those things. But there was so much more to it than that in this time. You see, to take someone in with this sort of hospitality, it would have meant that, that they wouldn't have just been there for a night or a day or even two, but, but oftentimes it would require many days and maybe even weeks that these people would stay with you. And so it would require sacrifice and serving and taking them under your temporary care. And so this hospitality... This thing that Gaius did, it's actually an expression of love. That's what they said, right? Who testified to your love. It's a demonstration of his love for the people because love, true love, is giving and sacrificing. Giving and sacrificing self for the sake of serving another. And so I want you to think now about the contrast that we have between diatrophies and between Gaius. Right? Diatrophies. He sought to serve himself, and he sought to gain power and authority and influence, but, but Gaius, he supported and cared for and gave himself for the sake of others, and friends, that is love. That is love, and that is Jesus. Have you ever noticed how often when the love of God and the love of Jesus are spoken of, it's in the context of Jesus giving himself for the sake of his people? Have you ever noticed that? Like in 1 John chapter 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Out of love, he gave his son to die for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because of the Father's love, he sent his Son. Mark 10, Jesus himself said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We could go on again and again and again and hear of how out of love Christ gave himself for you. Out of love he gave his life for you and for me. It's all over the scriptures again and again and again. This is what Christ does for us. That he gives himself. For those who would know God and trust in him and have our sins forgiven, the reason why our sins have been forgiven and the reason why we trust him and the reason why we know him is because Christ has given himself out of love. For you. For me. For the beloved. And so friends, as those who know that love, Beloved, as those who know Christ has given his life for you, let us not imitate evil. No, let us flee from it. Let us turn our backs to it. When we engage in it, let us repent of it. Instead, let us imitate good by walking in truth and loving one another because that is the love that Christ has shown to us. Amen. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do thank you that it was out of love that you sent your Son to live and to die and to rise again. It was out of love, Lord Jesus, that you gave your life. It was out of love that you took our sin upon yourself and you gave us grace, mercy, and forgiveness. And so we pray that we would respond to that love and we would walk in your truth and we would love one another. Help us to do this for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. And we pray all this in Christ's name. And God's people said together, Amen.